she gave this talk on poverty and how people are not that like this is the solution to like getting rid of poverty around the world, but mm -hmm. that when people are constantly stressed about like financial need and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that, that there actually are certain um, spikes in stress hormones that actually like decrease life, um, like longevity of life. Yeah, which is, you know, which is interesting. So not only does not having like access to certain financial resources, you know, decrease your life, but because, you know, you don't have access to food and healthcare, but, you know, also the stress could be decreasing your life too. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Today on the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest was a Division I swimmer at Columbia. He had a fellowship at NASA, uh, which has a much longer title that I can't quite remember, and I'm sure he'll tell us about here in a minute. Currently, he's racing triathlon with Wadi Inc., and he is a certified yoga instructor. Not only that, but he just finished his PhD in medical engineering at MIT. Welcome to the show, Richard Feynman. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me, man. Did I get all that in? Exactly. I, <laughs> it was yeah, you know, you know that, that was pretty good. I mean, I don't remember exactly. Did I send you my CV? Because I've been, I've been sending that around a lot because, you know, I'm like looking for postdocs and jobs and stuff. And so, sorry, <laughs> it's a little long. And it, I just, you know, when you're on the job hunt, you just got to woo people. So, no, yeah, that was good. That was good. No, that's okay. You, you. Know, I, you know, I like I said, I, you know, we were talking before we got started recording. I just, you know, I want to give you credit where credit's due. And it, typically, I, you know, I find it, like somebody like you who's going to be like super competitive. I mean, anybody who's on this show is a smart athlete. Like there's usually a lot going on there, even though it may not necessarily be apparent on the surface. Yeah. So. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. I, I find that when, uh, like, even here at, like, MIT, anyone who was, like, pretty athletic was, you know, here. Like, I don't know. They do a lot of things. I think I think the brains and the uh, athleticism kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. And I think that the thing that links them together is just, like, a really good work ethic. Mm. I find that everyone who I've uh, tra trained with um, has a pretty good work ethic, and that translates into their career. Um, just, you know, grad school isn't for everyone cause it can suck. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, like I know you had Greg on the podcast. So we, he was kind of like my, uh, when he moved out here to Boston, he had just finished his PhD and I was on, and now was in the middle of mine. And so we would, I would frequently bitch to him about how much it sucked. And then he would provide me the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And, and, and now that I done, now that I'm done, He's almost revealing to me how much he held back about how bad grad school was just to give me a little bit of like confidence and optimism. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, yeah. see, and Greg even told me last week, he said, um, which you have, the episode's not out yet, so you haven't seen it. He yeah. said, uh, you know, what Richard doesn't know yet is that it's all downhill from here. Like, you think it's going to get easier and it, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good to thanks, Greg. <laughs> Jerk. I think he's yeah. just, I think he's just, you know, he's trying to give you just enough perspective to keep you motivated, but not so much just to like crush your soul. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, 
maybe what he's getting at is like other other things in life come up. Like, I mean, he's yeah. he's about to have a a kid, yeah. So you know, he's uh, and we're both kind of like you know, we're both more on the sensitive side, and we can both be kind of anxious people. So we kind of relate in that regard. So I'm I'm sure like the fact that he's having a kid, you know, he's pretty anxious about that. Yeah. But, well, so I, mean, I get it's big, it. It's a big change. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you just graduated, you know, uh, you know, it should be a time of like elation, but I, with that kind of anxiety of trying to find a job, how's the job search going? You know, are you, are you feel like you're getting some solid leads in? Yeah. I mean, like I have, um, I have a few offers and, and the hardest thing has been kind of like leveraging what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get your PhD and you're surrounded by these, these brilliant professors and a lot of them are kind of trying to pull you to like stay, stick with academics, but there's mm-hmm. like this, there's like a larger and larger growing pool of, of PhDs who actually just go into, into the workforce and go into industry. So mm-hmm. I've kind of constantly been trying to figure out like, do I want to do academia? Do I want to re- pursue the faculty route or do I want to, like go into industry mm-hmm. and you know for a while uh i've always thought that like industry is just kind of like selling out so and uh i was pretty set on on being a professor and um as soon as i gr- there are a couple of things kind of happened that led me to to question that mm-hmm. um kind of had like a little bit of identity of identity crisis but so my my boss um, here at MIT, uh, she's a brilliant professor, um, one of the best mentors I've ever had, and very liked in the department. But because of like some dumb politics, you know, she ended up not getting tenure. And so this past semester, she announced that she's leaving MIT, mm. um, despite the fact that so many people, like other f- professors, just you know, adore her and she's so great for the department. And so, you know, to me, that was like, okay, someone who is really striking the balance between being a, being a great, you know, professor and mentoring her students and teacher, but also like putting out like great research, you know, our group produces so a lot, a lot of papers. She's, she serves on various panels for the NSF or the um, National Robotics Institute. NSF very- is the National Science Foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. National Science Foundation. And, you know, so she's very, it's very successful academic and still, you know, that's like, I mean, you know, it's MIT, but just because of some weird politics, you know, they decide not to, the department decides not to put up for tenure and a lot of people have been upset. So to see someone who is just really killing it in all aspects of life to still like not have that job security and, you know, to be thrown under the bus by that, like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't really know if I want to like live with that kind of stress. And, you know, granted she applied to a few jobs this semester and now has a full tenured position at the university of Michigan. And we're all really happy for her. But you know, the fact that like for the first like seven to 10 years of your career, that you are pretty much living at the will of your department and whose head, the person who hire you can change. So the department head can change who then might not no longer like, like you as much and like your work. So it's like, it, it sucks. And, you know, I've always been drawn to academics because there's like a very pure, like scientific goal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, you get to like mentor students and you get to learn a lot. Um, and so, you know, I really started to like question that when I saw this kind of my professor kind of go through this. And so I started to like interview for various industry jobs. And so now I'm like very, I was like very excited by a lot of these industry opportunities. So, you know, I have offers or, you know, I'm kind of leveraging, I have like an offer for a postdoc, but then I'm also kind of waiting on this one industry offer that I'm really excited about. So it's hard to, to kind of figure it out. So, you know, while, you know, I haven't put that much effort into actually applying, it's been more, I guess, coming back to your original question, it's been harder. The hardest part has been really trying to figure out what I want to do and what is going to end up making me like the most happy. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, and actually, uh, th this week will be like a big kind of trend, just like a big point where I'm going to figure that out because I should hear back from like a couple of places. Yeah. And then I'll really have to make a decision. Yeah. You, you know, your, your dilemma kind of made me think about, um, I had a conversation with uh, pro triathlete Mike Meehan, and he's uh, he's an engineer working on his PhD, and he kept coming back to this idea about how he wants to make an impact in his community. Oh yeah, and, and now like that's an idea that I I think I deal with a lot in terms of like once you get to the point where like you have enough money to cover whatever lifestyle you want, and like you, you, I think about yeah. like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you have all that stuff covered and you're, you're getting to the point where you're like working on self-actualization which i think most of us in the first world can probably you know do like to me it's a matter of that happiness comes from where do you see yourself you know making the most impact whether it's you know academic yeah. that pure science research or whether you think you can actually take that into industry and make an impact in terms of you know say you're at i'll use nasa just because an easy example since you've already yeah. been there like if your work can make such a positive impact, you know, in that environment. Yeah. Um, so that maybe that's food for thought, I guess. No. Yeah. I mean, that that's also something that I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, you know, I don't want like my research just to kind of like sit in a pile of like, academic journals that like yeah. only myself and my students read and maybe a few of my colleagues you know, I definitely like, want to make, make an impact. And, you know, the re part of the reason I went into medical engineering was because it was that whole idea of medicine and healthcare and being able to help people. Yeah. And, you know, being in, like an engineer, it's, it's kind of hard because there are definitely some areas of engineering that are very cutting edge and, and applied in the long run could like change, change the world. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there are like kind of my area of research is, you know, Kind of more like middle ground like I, I i do like experimental biomechanics and i work a lot with um, like inertial measurement so uh inertial measurement those are the motion sensors that are like in your phone or in your garmin watch okay. or you know or in your activity tracker so just really trying to extract more detailed information about motion from these sensors and then you know trying to like apply it for for, for the clinic and trying to, you know, maybe monitor people at home better. Um, so we focus a lot on like rehab and stuff like that. And, you know, you know, the work is really cool, but you know, the fact of the matter is that there are like companies, both startups, but also like bigger companies that are exploring this work as well. So, 
you know, some, some of these interviews that I've had are with industry. They want me to continue my work, mm-hmm. but to actually apply it on a, cons- on a consumer grade device that will eventually be shipped as a product. So when I think about it, it's like, okay, like I'll still be doing similar research. I'll still be, um, you know, uh, you know, very, I'll be in a very scientific group because it's like a research role. It's not so mm-hmm. much like, like the engine and en- like engineering roles at these companies, they're trying to build something to sell, but the scientist roles are kind of more like R and D. So they do the, like the research, there's a lot of, there's like user studies behind it. Um, and it's then validated, mm. you know, before it's shipped. So they're like, the scientists are more on like two, three, four year, um, top, like, uh, you know, like the stuff they're working on won't ship for another two, three, four years. But right. The engineers, you know, um, might be on more of a like nine to twelve month cycle because you know, Garmin comes out with a new a new forerunner every every year. So yeah, those engineers have to like be on top of that every year. Um, so anyway, like if I'm doing the same work, but now it's actually going to be shipped in a device eventually that might actually benefit a consumer and you know make its way into the clinic, like. Then I can make a much bigger impact. So it's hard, and and you know, you, and so it's. I've really kind of tried to only like explore industry jobs where I feel like that impact would be most, um, mm-hmm. where I could make the most impact. Yeah, it's tough to it's tough to like relate this experience without you having had it yet. But I know, like for for me, like as an entrepreneur my goal is to take like clearly defined problems and solve them. And I'm not, I don't have the resources to have an engineering team or make anything as complicated as like, I'll say a Garmin watch, but like there's such like, to me, there's such like this satisfaction, almost like a thrill. Like I don't need to go like thrill seeking. Cause like when I get this positive feedback that like whatever I've created or brought out, like somebody says, that I, you know, I tried all these things and then I finally tried yours and like it worked better than anything I could ever find before. Like uh-huh. that's so satisfying. Like that's, that yeah. was the whole point of you know, doing all this rigmarole was to actually like, even if it's just one person, like making this small impact, like to me, that's like that, that's the highlight of what I do, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, there's like there's definitely been like there are thrills during my PhD where like I publish a paper, but you know, I guess I haven't like exactly had that thrill of where like yeah. someone's actually like used something that I've made and you know benefited from it. Yeah, and you know, sometimes I feel like it's selfish to want that. You know, like oh, I want my work to make a difference, but you know, I'm only one person who you know can't solve the world's problems. No, um, but you know it. It you know even if you can make like a tiny impact, you know that would be pretty cool. Well, and there's a, I think there's something to be said about um, one of my psychology professors had an argument that altruism isn't real. Like hmm. you can't you can't be purely altruistic. You can have motivations to um, you know help other people, but ultimately there's some kind of like you know benefit you get from helping other people, like feeling good about having done it. Yeah. So that I kind of like, in some ways I just don't worry about it. Like if you're, I think it's a good thing if you're motivated to help other people, like 
you know, even if it is selfish to yeah. want to do it, you know, you're still making a positive impact. No, yeah. Yeah, I've actually uh, talked about that with people too. And with my dad a lot. My dad's a physician. And so okay. he definitely tries to practice being, you know, humble and, and altruistic and very motivated by helping others. But it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to deny the fact that he definitely get like a personal satisfaction out of helping others too, which is inherently not altruistic. Right. So yeah, right. I definitely agree with, with, with that. Yeah. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a big, it's a big balancing act really. And then yeah, uh, as we go down the rabbit hole, then you're like, you go into like compensation and like, what is money and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All that, that money, whole thing. Does money buy happiness, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, which, you know, it doesn't, but you know, there's actually, it's interesting. I, uh, I TA'd a uh, therapeutics class last semester mm-hmm. and uh, someone actually came in. She was the chief medical officer at uh, MGH, Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital. Oh, I guess I just gave away who it was because I said that. But anyway, um, she gave this talk on poverty and how people are not that like this is the solution to like getting rid of poverty around the world, but Mm -hmm. that when people are constantly stressed about like financial need and and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, that there actually are certain um spikes in stress hormones that actually like decrease life um like longevity of life yeah which is you know which is interesting so not only does not having like access to certain financial resources you know decrease your life but because you know you don't have access to food and healthcare, but you know also the stress could be decreasing your life too so it's it's interesting yeah um anyway yeah <laughs> yeah not, it's not like... the, another segue but it's all yeah no it's a whole rabbit like we can go down this whole rabbit hole but well i want to back up because i want to actually give you a little time to talk about uh your research can so can you give me like so i said i watched the the, the clip that mit made about your research but can you kind of in yeah. words tell a little bit about what you've been working on yeah so like kind of like what i said earlier my work has to do with quantifying human performance so from a biomechanics perspective. So understanding the the way that people are moving in order to inform different types of decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll give like two examples from my work. So, you know, I, well, the two examples that were highlighted in that video were this idea of like fall risk and then uh, actually related to my NASA work was, was, was spacesuits. So mm. both these, you know, these, these two fields might seem distinct, but they actually paint a very similar perspective picture when you look at it from this perspective. Mm-hmm. So when someone is, uh, comes to a rehab clinic, uh, they'll, they'll be seen by a therapist and they're typically evaluated. And so they're evaluated using a series of tasks and a lot of visual observations. So, therapists will watch what they're doing and there'll even be some like physical touching. So they might like feel if like a certain muscle is seizing up during an action and see which muscles are activating and stuff like that, feel for atrophy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when you look at like a spacesuit, 
when someone is moving in a spacesuit and they're trying in the you know suit the en engineers who build the suit are trying to see whether or not someone like fits in that suit and whether that suit is going to work for them mm -hmm. they do the, they do the same thing they they visually inspect them using a series of tasks and sometimes they even feel it like there are like soft components on the suit and they try to feel where where is this person inside the suit mm -hmm. so you know and they both like they both need data on human motion to make decisions so currently like all of these decisions are made um visually and very subjectively so what my work tries to do is to to take things that are done subjectively and quantify them and make them more objective mm -hmm. so for like the rehab stuff i developed like a series of metrics for coordination and balance and fluidity that try to quantify these various aspects of motion in a way that someone can use it to make a decision and then um, on the spacesuit side i've used similar metrics but to quantify what's called like spacesuit fit and so um if you think of a spacesuit as like this passive exoskeleton um we've actually started to apply this concept of fit um not just to spacesuits but to actually active exoskeletons mm -hmm. so um trying to quantify like how uh how fit affects the way someone can move inside these um exosystems so it's pretty cool um you know that's kind of like the minute long long spiel hopefully yeah. it's not too technical but no you're right you know if i like we're you know another way to think about it is i try to use uh, wearable sensors to like diagnose various different musculoskeletal diseases that's mm. like another like that's like the two second pitch yeah you know so so yeah that's kind of so, like my work and, and yeah yeah so you're using the like the motion i saw you using the motion caption software software in the uh um the like two minute highlight reel from mit and yeah um i was kind of curious like are you using something out of the box or did you guys design that software oh no so we use like the same motion capture software that like the movies use okay um it's called Vicon. Um, that's just the one we use. And it's a series of infrared mo uh, cameras. Um, we use a whole bunch of them and they're able to kind of, the infrared light reflects off a series of markers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as long as two cameras can see a marker, we can track it in, in 3D space. Right. So, you know, that system is very, uh, it is, you know, it's not portable. You can only use it in the lab and you can't really use it outdoors because right. you know the infrared gets saturated by the uh by the sun so yeah. we try to use like these wearable sensors because we want to kind of take a lot of that advanced biomechanical analysis and in, into other scenarios so um you know for example like a rehab clinic not everyone can afford that kind of software mm -hmm. and uh for one like setting it up takes a while it can take us up to 15 to 20 minutes to put all the markers on a subject mm -hmm. and even then it takes us it can take us up to an hour to then post-process the subject you know and when a patient only has 60 minutes with the therapist they don't want to be wasting half of their time using a technology that might not even help them make a decision you know yeah. they want to spend all their time they can with their patient right so in order to reduce the time burden on um the clinician but also to give them more information that they might not be seen just visually we try to use these like wearable sensors that are just um commercially available and uh and, and very safe to use 
So, so, so like the the other sets you're using, are they just like, uh, are you using them in like, oh, so let's say like similar body points, and then they have like, um, what is the word uh, like something to measure the velocity in them as well? Yeah. Or? Yeah. So we use they're called IMUs, inertial okay. measurement units. They're the same sensors. Well, it's actually a series of three sensors, and they're the okay. same ones that are in your phone. Right. Um, so it's an accelerometer, a gyroscope, and a magnetometer. So from there, you get accelerations, rotations, and then um, you get orientation. And so with those three, you can use what I call you can you can approximate um, how how the segment is moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you know the technology is good, but it's not the best. So we do have to build in different types of methods to quantify error and um, and stuff like that. So, so we are, are, the way we do it is we put one of these sensors on each body segment um, so that we can better, uh, so we put a, one sensor on each body segment and that gives us an idea of how different body segments are moving relative to each other. We can kind of do a full reconstruction of body shape and, and body position over time and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is, are you thinking like, so is this, I guess, what you're working on, is it only applicable in, let's say, like a clinical setting? Or could you use it like almost in a sport performance setting to like increase biomechanical efficiency in athletes or something? Oh, no. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like one of the projects our lab worked on was in collaboration with the Army to try to improve soldier performance. Uh-huh. And there, there, are, there are thousands of applications that could be used for, um, for sports. Um, you know, like my lab is, you know, funded through like the NSF and the NIH. So we don't really have the time to do, to do sports, but definitely on the side, like I've kind of tried to look at it, look into it myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, and I even dabble in like, like a startup for sports, but I just didn't have time to really yeah. see, flush it out with my PhD and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, is it something that like someone would maybe run with every day? Probably not because, you know, you have to put like a sensor on every body part, but is it something that like a coach could use once a month to help, help their, uh, their athletes visualize their form and technique and kind of refine it a little bit better, you know, definitely. Yeah. Um, I just think about like, I do a, another show, like just talk about like running and kind of my background in running, trying to share for people that don't know. And I, one of the things that comes up all the time is like running form. And I watch yeah. people run by my house and sometimes it's just terrible. Like legs are flailing out to the side and it's like, I don't think people always yeah. have enough body sense to realize like how many extraneous movements yeah. they're doing and like what kind of damage that could potentially be doing to joints and things and, and not let alone like, the lack of efficiency in, in forward movement. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that's like a big open research question right now, at least that I have is, is that idea of, you know, injury prevention and stuff like that, because you can see two people run, for example, totally differently. And, um, and, you know, they won't get injured. Right. Um, but you can also see two people run almost exactly the same. And the other one is going to get injured and, and, one is going to get injured and one is not. Mm-hmm. So there's like very like subtle 
it could, you know, one of them could just be anatomy, you know, just their bones are shaped a little bit differently. The angle of their femur, femoral head is slightly different, which then makes them one more prone to injury than the, than the other, for example. Um, but we really, we understand acute injury. So for example, if you fall and break your leg, that's an acute injury attack right. like that. Instantly, right. We don't really understand well, um, chronic injury. So mm -hmm. what kinds of motor patterns and, you know, training loads lead to like chronic injury. And so, uh, and part of it is because we just haven't had the technology to be able to track people on a right. day to day basis. You know, I mean, so if you're studying, if, like if you're picking up her, or like, if you get to choose like a, a longitudinal study, are you are you taking like say a hundred runners and tracking them over a year, and they're you're wearing your like they're wearing your like motion tracking equipment for the whole year? Like, would that give you I mean, enough yeah, data? That that would be that would be ideal for sure. Um, but you know, there's like no. There's no funding out there for oh, right. that. I mean, that's for that kind of study. It's it's too long. So what you what you do is you kind of you take time points. You know what I mean? So the way a lot of studies are done now is um, is you take like a you take time points and you're able to you sample them like every two weeks or something like that. Uh -huh. But you know, you know, I think something that I I'm really curious about is if we can continuously monitor the, monitor these people. You know, I think there, there's a lot of insight that could be had. Um, so, like, you know, imagine if your if if your phone could tell if you like sync a workout with your phone, and and the app can tell you, you know, oh, we're noticing, or just you're trending into potential higher injury risk or something like that. Consider mm -hmm. adding strength, or consider decreasing your training load, or consider like. Um, you know, going to going to a, a physical therapist to see what what might be happening. Yeah, and then at the same time, then that information could be ported to to the therapist or to the doctor, who could then use that to make a decision to maybe see why, understand why the machine was making that decision and and how mm -hmm. they can intervene and stuff like that. You know, I'm all about like in this day and age of like machine learning and AI, I'm all about giving people data that they can use to make a decision on their own. Right. I don't think devices should be making decisions because then if they're wrong, we just inherently lose trust in it and then we'll never use it again. You know, cause it's a machine is a machine. It's binary. It's yes or no. A human can, you know, it's, we, you know, it's easier to kind of allow them to make mistakes and, right. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my thinking behind it. I mean, it's like, you know, kind of going back to the beginning, but like, it seems like you're suited well for private enterprise. <laughs> like yeah. your head, your head's definitely there. What could also be that I, uh, just came back from a whole bunch of enterprise interviews. Oh, okay. So okay. I have been able to, uh, you know, polish my, uh, <laughs> uh polish my my pitch to them yeah so that's fair enough too yeah um so this is this is kind of a, a personal i want to say like uh personal inquiry but like i mean was it like wearing a spacesuit because i'm pretty sure you were in a spacesuit in the video yeah um you know it's, it's heavy 
those things weigh like 130 pounds. Uh-huh. You know, they're they're designed to be worn in lower gravity environments, so right. weight isn't as big of an issue. And you know, you're also carrying. You know, also I should say that the one that I wore was like 40 pounds lighter than it usually is. Uh-huh. Because I was attached to to an umbilical cord that provided me with fresh oxygen. Okay. Versus, you know, on on Mars or whatever, you'd have a, a portable version of it. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very heavy. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're definitely not perfect. I mean, they'll get the job done. But if you have to use those things, this, well, this is my personal opinion. Um, I hope NASA doesn't get mad at me for this, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, like I think that chronic use of those things, you know, you're definitely going to have astronauts who, who might hurt themselves. And if they're on a long term mission where they can't come home right away, that's definitely something to be worried about. Because um, mm-hmm. NASA is all about, you know, having very calculated and scheduled operations. And, uh-huh. you know, if they have a, if something goes wrong, you know, the whole whole schedule can be thrown in disarray. And yeah. If you talk about a nine, well, a mission to Mars where you're there for nine months or something like that, imagine having like one astronaut at a commission. The amount of science you can you can no longer do is right. you know cut by it that much. So I think you know we need to better understand how we can, for one, uh, get rid of some of the effects of traveling in microgravity. So when you're musculoskeletal system isn't exposed to to gravity and that constant load from gravity you start to lose bone you start to lose muscle right so we need to like better understand how we can counteract that and then also um we need to better understand you know if i'm putting someone in this very heavy spacesuit that might alter the way someone naturally walks or interacts with the environment what does that mean in terms of injury risk and so, you know, now in my lab, because we have these more portable measurement techniques, we're finally starting to kind of, you know, inch away at that question, which is pretty cool. See, like uh, what, when I saw the video for your research, because, you know, my head's in like private enterprise, my, my first thought immediately is like, I'm thinking about how, you know, everybody's trying to like privatize space travel and then kind of, I'm thinking you know, far down the line in terms of development and people in space from like Nike sponsored, like high performance spacesuits is where my head, my head went is like yeah. the genesis of what you're working on becomes eventually, you know, I say, I say Nike just because it's a, they make performance pro- products and like yeah. performance at, at like athletic wear could be Under Armour or whatever. I, I'm not specific, but just, that's where my head went. So I was just like, how long till we see this weird amalgamation of like, you know, since we already have, it's just like Tesla's already delivering payloads to the International Space Station, aren't they? Oh, uh, SpaceX, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Sorry. God, yeah. Musk, I get confused. Um, so, I mean, you already have like a some kind of synthesis between private enterprise and, and government-run yeah. program. So it's like, I'm just trying to envision into the future. Um, you're talking about uh, like the, the so here's here's the thing with with private space flight though, is that 
you know, current, I think current models for private spaceflight and tourism entail uh, the tourist, you know, traveling up in, in a capsule in a vehicle, mm-hmm. maybe orbiting the earth a few times and then coming back down or potentially even like potentially like staying on a station. Now the difference between, between that and some of like the exploration things that NASA wants to do mm-hmm. is that it wouldn't require what's called an EVA, which is extravehicular activity. So mm-hmm. the suits that I've worked on are EVA suits. They're meant okay. to, they're essentially human shaped space, uh, space, spacecraft. Yeah. And so when you're like launching and then coming back to earth, you do have to wear a specialized spacesuit, but the mobility requirements for that are like very minimal. Okay. So, for example, on the space shuttle, you know, they wore those orange jumpsuits yeah. when they landed. Yeah. So those are in the event of an emergency where there's sudden like depressurization, those will inflate and then, um, you know, keep the astronauts breathing. But, um, you know, the astronauts technically didn't, would not have to move from then on. So they only really required some mobility in the hands for the pilot so he could pilot the vehicle. Okay. Potentially. But, you know, they don't need to walk. You know, they don't, there's limited arm mobility that's required. But when you talk about, like, walking on the moon, you need, you know, you need to be able to, to walk, right? You need to be able to crouch down to pick things up. You need to be able to use tools, you know, whether if you're digging and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more complicated. So for private space flight, if you've like looked at like some of SpaceX's mock-ups, you know, and Boeing's mock-ups, you can create a pretty aesthetically pleasing and functional suit for those launch and entry, um, you know, suits. But if you talk about like then tourists doing EVAs, um, it becomes a lot more complicated. Yeah. So NASA is definitely more thinking about like exploration. You know, going back to the moon, going to Mars, so yeah. you need to really think about those a lot more complicated technologies. And so, but I mean, you know, NASA and Boeing, they they have these contracts for to bring astronauts back to the space station. And you know, it's been del- it's been constantly delayed because it's 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 really hard when you start adding in people. You know, mm-hmm. we are not, uh, you know, we we're sensitive. We uh, you know, and you know, we're very risk. You know, when it comes to space travel, we're very risk averse right now. So, you really have to, you know, dot your eyes and cross your T's and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, you know, I think I think I think it's cool that people are are starting to explore private space travel, but it always makes me a little bit worried. I hope people are like really careful because yeah. It's it's with any technology. As soon as if it happens too quickly and something goes wrong, it's going to be delayed for decades. Yeah, you know. So, I just hope that like the regulators are uh, are on top of it and, and making sure that everything runs smoothly. Yeah, well, that's always a trick with regulation. Is that like regulation always runs behind technology? Think about even yeah. just like like uh, consumer level drones. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. People are flying over people's houses, and we don't have regulations to say what can and can't be done with just yeah. regular, everyday RC drones. Yeah. And and regulars still trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's so, yeah. Then it becomes a matter of 
yeah. you've got to have whoever's in charge of that private enterprise is, in regards to space flight being like super particular about absolutely everything. Yeah. This is a whole other rabbit hole we could dive into. <laughs> yeah. Not often I find that's how it is for like a lot of people. I'm like, we could probably go on for like three hours about all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I do want to give you a chance to talk a little, like a little bit more about kind of your sports stuff. Um, sure. There's kind of three different ways I can go. I, I do want to kind of harken back. I, I think I'm correct in this. When I talked to Corey, were you part of the beer mile? Oh yeah. The, uh, Corey said, I think, first... were you the winner? Was that, I, I did win the beer mile. Okay. So, so take so me back we... through the beer mile. What, what, what's your technique for, for being the winner? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you get to I mean, be the, that champion? I'll, I should say I was the winner of four individuals. Who okay. Participated. Um, but I will also say I'm not definitely not the fastest of those four individuals. Yeah, well, that's what Corey um, said. <laughs> so we just did this on like a random Thanksgiving. Um, you know, season was over. Um, I forget. You know, usually a lot of these shenanigans would start when Greg would uh, get drunk and have an idea, and so he got dr- he got drunk and was like, "Guys, I'm doing a beer mile on this day. You should come with me." And so then we like, we, we did it. And uh, so, you know, we did it at the, we called it the Charlestown Classic, I believe. Uh, Cause we, we did it at the, Char- at the Charlestown uh, track. Uh-huh. But I had a little bit of a secret weapon in that I was also in a fraternity in college. So, okay. In which the d- drinking beers was frequent uh, and required speed. But so, yeah, I'm not the fastest out of all of them. Um, I was very nervous going into this because I did not want to throw up. Uh, <laughs> but, so for you, what's like, uh, so what's your mentality? Are you like, I want to win this, but I don't want to throw up? Or are you just, just concerned about not throwing up? I was mostly just concerned about not throwing up. And because uh, I don't know, I, I, I hate throwing up. <laughs> it's not a good feeling. <laughs> no. Um, and uh, I'm not really much of a drinker anymore, too. So my mentality was just, you know, was kind of like, you know, take my time and like each, each four, you know, for, well, for those of who don't know, the beer mile is, you know, four laps around a track, well, four plus laps around a track with a beer after every 400 or every quarter mile. And, um, so you start off drinking and, uh, you know, my, my strategy for the first lap was just, uh, you know, get the beer down and, uh, build it up and see how it felt in my stomach slowly kind of burp it out. And then, um, you know, I was not the first one to finish. I mean, we, everyone kind of finished the first beer at the same time. And, uh, well, maybe, Maybe I finished a little ahead of everybody, but they quickly caught up, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm this is not going well." <laughs> but then, you know, the second beer comes along, and I finish first again, and I'm running, and this time, uh, you know, they only catch up to me at the very end, and I was like, "Oh, I'm kind of putting a gap into people," and I don't know, I just, you know, I'm used to kind of chugging uh, beverages. Uh, or or beverages, I guess you could say. Um, okay. 
but uh, yeah, you just got to practice chugging, honestly. That's that's I think that's like the this, secret. It seems like that's the key. It's like if you yeah. if you take if you take you know five minutes to get one one down, there's no way. Yeah. You're even if you're like top flight sub four minute miler, like you're just not. Oh yeah, I mean the difference is, you know, if you look like on, on we posted it on Strava, obviously. Uh huh. And Strava wouldn't count the time that you were stopped and drinking. So if you look at like, you know, I ran, I think I, I went like a 550 where was uh-huh. my average run time. Uh-huh. But my final beer mile time was 630 versus everyone else was like, you know, low fives. And it's just the difference was that I could chug faster. Yeah. I honestly wasn't thinking about it. I was just going for it. And I'm probably overanalyzing it right now. <laughs> um, you know, but I will say it is a lot. It's a lot more fun than I thought. Uh-huh. And, uh. You know, if if you're bored on a Thanksgiving on, a, on your long weekend for Thanksgiving, it, it can be a fun activity to do with your friends for sure. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'm half curious about your experience with Ironman Maryland, but I do have to get diverted first. And with the yoga, since you're a certified yoga instructor, and I, I saw something about like you had to have 200 hours or something to to get certified. Oh, yeah. So like, how do you? So I mean, swam in college. You're a competitive triathlete now. You're the beer mile champion, and yeah. <laughs> and and you're I, a certified I, yoga instructor. Like, how do you? I that warrants being on my resume. <laughs> well, I'm gonna count at least for the podcast because it's entertaining. I think. Okay. Um, but I mean, I like how do you keep up with all like all these different sports? I guess if we'll call it yoga a sport, physical activity. Well. I don't know. I'm definitely one of those people where physical activity helps calm me down and decrease stress. Like I definitely get, get more stressed and my mental health suffers if I, if I, if I'm not exercising. Um, so for me, I kind of started doing yoga to, well, cause you know, it's, it goes cold during the winter time here in Boston and some friends in my degree program would go to hot yoga on like the weekends mm-hmm. and i was like oh this seems like a good yoga is like good for you it's like oh it's good to like stretch out and stuff you know before with all this other training that i'm doing and you know i just slowly kind of got more interested in it and I, I found that i actually learned a lot about anatomy and, and biomechanics in general so it related a lot to my research mm-hmm. um so i kind of then did the training the training was like on the weekends during like the off season so i I did the training with like with a friend to kind of really learn about it a little bit more and um you know not not to like be too much of like a hater to to the yoga people but you know there were definitely some times where i was like this is total bullshit and i'm never going to say this again in my life or never do this again in my life you know, there's like definitely a spiritual aspect to yoga, which mm-hmm. uh, is I don't subscribe to necessarily, but there are, and I think there are a little more like modern takes on it that mm-hmm. I think more people can relate to, like this idea of like mindfulness, um, which which definitely kind of like was interesting to me, and I think I think it's like important for any athlete to to be 
kind of mindful and not to kind of get caught up in, in all the, they, they, I think that you have a mindful athlete is someone who is not caught up in all the data and can just kind of focus on like what their body is telling them right here and now and not yeah. think about how am I going to feel later or how, what did I feel before this? Yeah. So it really just, a lot of it just tied together with, you know, my interest in sport, my research. So I did the training and I, and I taught for a while, but then eventually, you know, as is typical with the PhD, the PhD got in the way and I just had to, I had to drop something in order to finish in a timely manner. And, um, and so I, I just stopped teaching mm -hmm. and, uh, I also kind of realized that I wanted to, uh, this was when I was like pretty set on being a professor and I needed more teaching experience. So I got mm -hmm. a TIA job instead and that kind of supplemented the income I was getting from, uh, from the, from yoga. So did you notice, I like, mean, um, was it like, any, it, were you doing yoga at the same time you were doing triathlon? Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice like, so, a, a, you know, like a positive effect between the two or no, I, I definitely. And I think I'm actually suffering from it now. Um, when I was um, doing a lot of, uh, of yoga, I definitely saw that I recovered more quickly. I didn't get any injuries. Mm. And um, I often like, yeah, so those were the two big ones, which, you know, if you ask any athlete, hey, do you want to recover faster and not get injured? I think a lot of them will say yes, especially yeah. triathletes. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of it had to do with, with, you know, uh, it's like not so much cardio, but it is, there's a lot of like functional movement involved in yoga and, um, trying to activate certain muscle groups that maybe aren't activated as frequently, um, mm -hmm. in triathlon. So if you think about triathlon, you're isolated in a single kind of plane right? You know, running, you're kind of flexing and extending your knees and hips a lot. Same thing for cycling. And, you know, same thing for swimming, you're kind of in this one plane. And so yoga tries to kind of get at all the planes, um, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're moving more outside of that, that reference frame and strengthening like glute muscles and abductors and adductors that can oftentimes get weak during repeated physical activity in just the flexion extension plane. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think there's a benefit to that, um, really that sort of light strength and, um, stability training that I think helps with recovery and stuff like that. And if I think like also stretching helps to, um, helps with recovery and, um, that added extra movement. So you're not as sedentary gets the blood flowing to, um, kind of remove some of the lactic acid from your muscles. And then finally, if you do hot yoga, even though it can be incredibly frustrating, uh, you know, it's like being in a sauna. So you, you get that sort of idea of, you know, expanding your plasma volume potentially. Mm -hmm. So there's potentially that cardiovascular benefit. And, you know, yoga makes you like, makes you feel good. You know, it, it's a time where you can distract yourself from, uh, from whatever work you have, whatever, uh, whatever work you have, whatever training you're doing and just kind of focus on that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's just, it's just a good way to kind of forget about other things in your life too. Yeah. 
So like, so, yeah. it, so if I was going to so, add it into my training, am I doing it just once a week or like, what's your suggestion? Um, you know, definitely start easy. Probably I would definitely start easy. I mean, if you're going from like nothing to then doing like an hour and a half yoga class, it's probably a little extreme. I mean, you know, there are some, there's definitely some hard poses that your class might try. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't want to hurt yourself too, going too deep into a stretch. So ease into it. I definitely say like, I think like once a week is, is great. Like with any sort of strength routine that you add to your training. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of build it from there. If you can kind of, if you kind of learn enough from classes or if you really like it and you like a teacher training or something and you start to incorporate like 30 minutes instead of like one, one hour class a day, I think there's benefit to like doing maybe two 30 minute sessions in a week. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, I mean, when I was at my peak, I was going to yoga like twice a week, I think mm -hmm. um, for like an hour and for like 75 minutes. And that seemed to do do the trick and i would try to do one on like my recovery day and then the other one typically fell like in the middle of my like peak training mm -hmm. and sometimes what i even do is like like go for a run before the yoga class so then like during the yoga class i was just all right this is where i can chill i don't need to kill myself because you can definitely tell there are certain people who are like type a and they're like okay i'm here to work out and i gotta like get the mm -hmm. most out of this class so i'm gonna like do every single push-up they telling me to do i'm gonna do extra abs i'm gonna like kill myself and do everything extra but i think you should <laughs> it took me a while to learn this but there's definitely a benefit to taking it a little bit easier and really kind of listening to or like trying to sense like in your well, what feels good what doesn't feel good maybe what needs a little bit more stretching or strength training than others areas mm -hmm. of the body and stuff like that because mm -hmm. um, you know contrary to popular belief you know you can't hurt yourself in yoga you can you can uh you know pull the muscle mm -hmm. if you're trying to do like a crazy inversion you can you know fall on your head and stuff like that so yeah. with any sport that you take on for the first time definitely ease into it um but yeah, and I, and I think my biggest piece of advice would be to like not compare yourself to others too. Mm -hmm. Just do your own thing. You know, you, you know, you're not there to like show off to the person next to you. You should be there to recover and enjoy yourself and detach from, from whatever, you know, from whatever else you have going on in life for like an hour or so. So thinking about recovery, yeah. um, this is the question I ask everybody trying to be mindful of your time. Um, yeah. I always ask everybody cause this is a, like a universal thing we all eat. So I'm always curious if you had to choose one recovery food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chocolate milk. Solid answer. Yeah. So I was like, I've had a couple guests mention that so far. So. Oh yeah. Chocolate milk for sure. Um, I bet Greg, I bet Greg said ice cream. I think he wanted to. I think he said he wanted to say ice cream. I can't yeah, remember definitely. what he said. Yeah. So. Yeah, him, him, and my girlfriend. I've never seen. They eat them a lot of ice. I've never seen people eat so much ice cream. <laughs> you haven't spent time around me. Um, oh. <laughs> I eat a lot. Um, 
Richard, if people want to find you and see what kind of antics you're up to, where can they find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, uh, my at R.A. Feynman um, for both of them. And then Facebook is just Richard.Feynman. Um, I guess if you really are really interested in my research, I'm on ResearchGate, which is like this social network for researchers. They're uh-huh. just under Richard Feynman, too. Um, yeah. Has anyone ever plugged their ResearchGate on this podcast? Not yet, but that's, I All mean, right. that. Hopefully that becomes a thing. Yeah, um, that'd be cool. Um, but yeah, that's how you can. Oh, I'm also on Strava. So you can yeah. actually see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So you can see the swim log like 10 minutes before our conversation. <laughs> nice. I was, see, yeah. I swam this morning. I was like, I wonder if I'll still have the goggle lines on my face. Yeah. And yeah, I'm yeah. all right. Anyway, uh, thanks for coming on today, Richard. Yeah, thank you. Uh, It was fun. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care.